Welcome to Bootlegged Innovations with your host, John Schultz. Each week, we show you how to make your business enterprise more efficient with proven techniques that will help you spend less, break less, and make more. Now, here is John Schultz. Welcome to Bootlegged Innovations. This is episode two, and the title is Disruption. Uh, again, here at Bootlegged Innovations, it is our mission to help you bridge the gap between the needs of the business and the ability of the workforce to execute in a secure and resilient environment. Uh, just a couple of notes from last week uh, where we had an amazing uh, discussion with Andy Tim and Marshall Van Elstein on the Platform Re- Revolution. A couple key takeaways from last week's show if you want to tune in if you missed it. Uh, we're defining what we mean by digital orchestration talking about the network effect and how it applies to the platform economy, talking about why platform businesses actually eat traditional businesses. And we also talked about in the world of the platform, competition is far less important than collaboration and cooperation. Uh, As we get into this week's show, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about what I managed to put on my to-done list last week. We talked about the difference between the to-do list and the to-done list, and I tried to hold myself accountable to get some things to done uh, as we go for week to week. This week, we started working on a new center of in- industrial center of intelligence, and we'll have a future episode where we'll talk exactly about what a center of intelligence is, but this one was around human factors in uh, engineering and, and uh, COVID response how we can uh, adapt to some of the changing needs uh, in manufacturing in particular. Uh, They're having some real challenges in some essential manufacturing organizations of not only having to implement things like temperature checks, but also having to assign people to two to six person pods, maintain social distancing during the day between pods, sanitize surfaces on a more frequent basis and have uh, and have proof that those uh, surfaces were sanitized. And so we've been working with a company called Cognition that has an amazing uh, solution with regards to human factors engineering and the ability to up your security and surveillance to also include uh, facets of this uh, social distancing world. Also got to participate with a partner of ours at, on a webinar for Industry Week uh, on workforce intelligence, and that partner was uh, Augmenteer. We're in the process right now of actually running a whole bunch of process Weibel analysis for an oil and gas client to try to determine what the size of their hidden plant opportunity is. Um, And then finally, we also discovered a couple of new technologies in this last week that we can use to integrate into our energy intelligence discussions to provide some quick wins. Um, I also, on a personal level, broke into a uh, new bottle of High West Whiskey that a good friend of mine brought by the house as he was shooting skeet in the front 20. Um, And uh, yeah, this is week eight for me of not being uh, on the road. Actually, this is the start of week nine, so I've completed eight weeks. And uh, I graduated college in 1990, and this is the first time I've actually been home more than three consecutive weeks since graduating college in 1990. So it's a a learning curve for me and especially for my poor family that's having to tolerate uh, me wanting to get back on the the road and do what I do. Uh, With that said, uh, what I would like to do is uh, introduce my two uh, guests for this week. Uh, My first guest on disruption is uh, Angelique Mooring, the founder and CEO of GainX, 
Uh, we'll also get into later how she has some really mean survival and mad survival skills and a mean left hook. Uh, and uh, she's also been recognized as a woman, women, top women of fintech, uh, their power list for the third straight year. Angelique, please introduce yourself and your amazing platform company, GainX, to the audience. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, happy to talk with that um, mean hook that I have uh, later in the show. Um, so so my, my company is called GainX. It's just turned, um, or it's about to turn eight years old. Um, it started uh, in Canada. We recently, recently moved the headquarters, ended last year, to London, England, um, which is fascinating being stuck in Canada at the moment. And I use stuck lately because I live in a beautiful area of Canada. Um, and running a UK-based business. But thank God it is technology and allows for um, us to shift fairly easily. So um, I, I decided to launch GainX to try to solve an almost impossible problem to solve in the market. And that is how do you help organizations see across their entire organization, these are big complex businesses, while they are trying to change. So whether it's launching new innovations, just doing an M&A, trying to build a new business model, or responding to COVID, um, they, executives today typically don't have that visibility they need to see their tens of thousands of employees or thousands of employees in order to execute effectively. Um, just very briefly, I got there from um, I'll go back a ways, but I promise to make this quickly, uh, quick. I got a degree in business, which somehow I ended up taking into um, bioarchaeology and anthropology. And I worked primarily in um, Latin America, Peru, and, and Mexico. Um, absolutely fantastic gig trying to reconstruct economies and trade routes and um, societal health through bone fragments. Um, somehow I took that into uh, the current state, although it's, it's much easier to process data today than it was then. Um, I then took that into consulting for many, many years, um, which brought me into technology about 15 years ago. Um, I loved the pace of technology. I love that it was going to continue to go unchecked for decades to come. Uh, my last gig was running the operations for fairly significant um, multi-billion dollar software company and I just had that aha moment that if I bring all of this experience together into a platform um, supported by artificial intelligence then um, I might just be able to help change the world and help a lot more corporates um, survive and thrive in, in positive ways. Thanks Angelique. Uh, well, we may have to revisit that whole archaeology thing because <laughs> now all of a sudden it just dawned on me the whole clay layer concept oh, uh, yeah, of, your, yeah. of your platform yeah. and the, and it's tied to archaeology. So maybe we'll have a chance to, if not address that on this show, get it on Absolutely. some bonus reel at some time. Yes. I definitely took the, took advantage of some of those terms and liking to dig up things. So uh, my other guest is, uh, is Dan Matlas and Dan is the founder of Exendia, uh, who I also have learned can uh, wield a mean meat cleaver. And we'll get into that story a little <laughs> later in the, in the, in the, show and he not only can uh, yield that mean meat cleaver but he isn't afraid to use it. Uh, Dan is also affectionately known for those people in the life sciences and the medical device uh, business as a bit of the FDA whisperer. Uh, Dan, please introduce yourself and your amazing research and consulting company Exendia to the audience. 
Thank you, John, um, and I'm honored to be here. Uh, I'll start with a little bit of background. So I started my career uh, 30 years ago, uh, straight out of school as an electrical engineer at Johnson & Johnson. Uh, so I began uh, with as an automation engineer, bringing in what at the time was called computer integrated manufacturing, and then uh, early days of robotics and vision systems into the shop floor. Uh, so my experience over the last 30 years really spans the entire value chain from research and development all the way through to patient outcomes. Um, I have a degree in electrical engineering from what uh, from Brooklyn Polytechnic University, which is now the NYU Tandon School of Engineering, uh, <laughs> and a master's degree in management from NJIT, how things change. Um, before founding Accendia, I was actually a partner, vice president, and general manager of a leading life sciences consulting firm where I really helped build that life sciences consulting practice from 15 to 150 people. And then uh, we sold the business to what's now a division of GE Healthcare. And I also am honored to have the opportunity to have worked uh, with FDA on a number of transformational initiatives. Uh, such as the Case for Quality Initiative. I co-chaired the Product Quality Outcomes Analytics uh, team along uh, with FDA officials. And earlier this year, I was asked to join the FDA's Advisory Council for in-silico clinical trials, which means using modeling and simulation uh, to streamline critical clinical trials. So as far as Accendia, we are an analyst and strategy consulting firm, uh, and we work exclusively with life science companies at the intersection of business, technology, and regulatory issues. And really what we focus on is enabling what we like to call positive disruption uh, through strategic advice. Fantastic. And so uh, as the audience can once again attest to, uh, two consecutive weeks, uh, much I was successful in getting people to agree to be guests on my show that are far more intelligent than I am, which is always my goal. And that bar is not all that high from time to time. Uh, so Angelique, let's get started with some of the line of questioning. Uh, one of the things that uh, in the very first conversation that you and I had, you went off on an amazing narrative. Uh, with regards to the three forces that you see happening uh, right. that are pointing to disruption and the three ways in which companies will respond to those three forces. And I wondered if you would share that conversation with the audience. I am happy to do that. So um, I think, so if you look back over the last two centuries, um, you can see a lot of, um, historical markers that I think will help us to predict who the next market leaders are going to be um, in the corporate landscape. And two of those, so so looking at three um, three forces or three pillars in this change that's going to force corporations and leaders to have to take um, some specific approaches to how they're going to um, economically survive the other side of COVID. The first, the first one is um, what I would call two macroeconomic forces that came together at the same time. And again, you can see these over the last 200 years in repeated um, circumstances. One of which is when there is a massive disruption um, to the economy itself, 
And so you can look at World War One, World War Two, the 2008 global financial crisis, and, and the list actually goes on. And each time one of those economic um, disruptions have occurred, the top layers of leadership, of market leadership, um, tends to get decimated and replaced by new leadership. That tends to happen on its own. The other one is um, what I would call unchecked technology advancements or innovations. And again, you can go back 200 years through agriculture and electricity and into today with you know, the introduction, obviously, of the internet or the web, GPS um, or artificial intelligence and soon to be quantum computing. When those, and again, often called different things depending on the economists that might be speaking about it, but that creative disruption or um, unchecked technology advancements occur, what happened um, is, again, upper um, leadership in the market with regards to corporate leadership gets decimated and new leaders come into play. Um, Typically, these don't happen at exactly the same time as they just have with COVID. We've had a massive, unprecedented economic shock. At the same time, technology is not slowing down in any means. In fact, I think you could look at many technologies such as, um, you know, the future of work and collaboration and so on that will only be accelerated um, probably by five to seven years. So, for example, Microsoft, who's a partner of ours, their um, collaboration tool Teams has grown 700%. And that was about three weeks ago um, since the introduction of, of um, COVID on the economy. So when these things happen, companies do one of three things. They either um, ignore the new innovation and they continue to try to do business as usual and repeatedly they have failed. They adopt the new innovations in market, but they don't change their business models. And again, they... Um, on average tend to fail and I'm talking about the big global leaders or they adopt the new innovation and they change their business models and then they are able to survive and and thrive through that the other two tend to create mass job extinctions so we've got these two macroeconomic forces happening at the same time which um, there's just so much evidence even today to say that those that are already changing their business models and um, willing to uh, adopt new innovations, getting them out of the basement from experimental proof of concepts at $10,000 you know, ago, um, that is not a success metric. That is what I would call a vanity metric um, and bringing it into what I call the C-suite. So that's the first one. The other two are much quicker to describe. The second one is that we are so fundamentally in the age of the network. I think this ties in quite a bit to your um, first episode that you did last week. John, um, sorry, Joshua Cooper Raymer, Ramo is, in my mind, one of the best speakers on what it means to be in the age of the network, powered both by artificial intelligence and platforms. And basically, data has grown just within the last three to five years by a thousand times in speed and quantity. Um, it's about to grow a, a hundred billion times over the next five to seven years because of the introduction of quantum computing. And what this means for executives is it's no longer humanly possible for them to process the data that they need to process to take uh, lower risk strategic decisions um, 
at the speed that they're going to need to, to go towards. And I think we'll, we'll probably talk a little bit later in the show about the need to iterate quickly. So, um, so again, the, that network means organizations need to become familiar not only with the network, for example, of their supply chains, which you can see them all looking at right now, but their internal networks and how the two influence each other with their ability to deliver their strategic goals. And the third one, and this is very much um, now an Angelique opinion, but one of the reasons that I, my team is so motivated to help organizations and corporates survive and thrive is because we're seeing a, a geopolitical shift happen as well. Um, some are calling it um, so soft plays in the market by non-democratic countries. I think that um, there are clear markers that given the powers that even democratic governments have been taken, and rightfully so, to, to save lives and, and manage COVID, I think they're gonna be pretty loath to give up those powers. And what that means is that our human rights, our um, human freedoms and our um, democracy itself are at significant risk with those shifts all happening um, from a geopolitical perspective. So in my mind, by helping organizations and corporates survive COVID and come out through that economic recovery by thriving, um, we're protecting that, well, in, I sometimes will say we're we, to leave no human behind, right? We're assuring the well-being um, of our of our human race and our human freedoms that we have fought for century after century to get to where we are today. So those are the, the three forces I see coming into play that are quite significant. It's a great summary. And you also talked about the three different types of companies and the ways that they would respond. And uh, one, only one of those three uh, really come out on the back end of something like this is what I would consider to be true survivors, which ties me into kind of the introduction of your mad survivor skills and how early in life you got uh, introduced to uh, to survival skills. Would you care to share a little bit about that story with our audience before I move on to Dan? Yeah, you know, at the time I did it, I didn't think it was so much fun, but it it certainly, I think it, um, it definitely gave me the grit I needed to do anything in my life. So the short version of it is having grown up an army brat um, in, in Canada, moved over from Germany, um, I had the truly the privilege at 15 years old after some serious survival training through the armed forces um, to get dropped off in the Rocky Mountains um, with a knife, a piece of rope and a match and all my combat gear and told to go survive um, and that they'd see me in a week, hopefully. Uh, and so at 15, um, you know, I knew how to light that fire and certainly never ever let it go out always remember where i was as i was navigating my way around to catch my own food um through with that piece of rope that i would assemble into things like fishnets it was an incredible way to figure out how to be truly innovative in survival circumstances and that way of thinking that there is always a way around the challenges in front of you, including being genuinely being chased by a bear. That was a moment where I was like, I just want to go home. <laughs> um, but, you know, those, those survival skills um, certainly have, have done me good. And I, to this day, I still love camping and going out and having that one match challenge. <laughs> Fantastic. So Dan, uh, 
Coming into 2020, you actually published the business regulatory and technology radar and claimed that a disruptive storm is coming in the area of life sciences. What's what what storm is it you believe is coming? Why do you believe it's coming? And uh, how close do you think that storm is? So I I think um, you know a lot of what we're seeing aligns very much with what Angelique mentioned. Um, what we in our industry we plot change along three primary axes. One is business. How is business changing? And whether that's internally or externally. The regulatory environment, uh, because uh, our industry is very heavily regulated by um, organizations around the world, and then what role does technology play? So this is one time where I wish we weren't right, uh, but we have been talking about disruption for many years. If you remember, uh, you know, the uh, Superstorm Sandy and... um, we had uh, Hurricane Maria in, in Puerto Rico, and we had the Fukushima um, uh, earthquake as well as tsunami that disrupted supply chains. And then we had that uh, volcano over Greenland that disrupted air travel. Disruption is always happening. Unfortunately, uh, you know, COVID-19 kind of brought all those issues together. So, we believe this, the, the storm is actually happening now. We were thinking that it would happen over the next uh, one to three years, but what we're seeing is this uh, situation really being a watershed moment for our industry. And the reason for that is we have that massive black swan event happening. Um, we are seeing our market changing uh, from a business standpoint, where we're seeing digital health being expedited. You know, we had been talking about telemedicine for a number of years. We actually worked with a client to develop a telemedicine solution five years ago. They couldn't sell it to anybody because it wasn't being reimbursed, right? So now all of a sudden we're hearing from governments around the world do telemedicine. That's growing. We're seeing also digital transformation happening as well as overall the technology, the smart sourcing. So there was a lot of insourcing, outsourcing, offshoring, onshoring. We're seeing more of a model where you're shifting, the industry shifting to what we call smart sourcing. From a regulatory standpoint, uh, we're seeing the Europeans, the the European uh, medical device regulations were supposed to go into effect uh, next month, and the EU is moving that to next year. But it's really requiring medical device manufacturers to bring together a whole set of data that they don't easily have, because some of these products have been on the market literally for 30, 40, 50 years. And the EU is now requiring manufacturers to bring that data together in a cohesive way to be able to keep those products on the market. FDA is undergoing a digital transformation. They are investing into a lot of technology and they're actually driving industry. Uh, They're shifting their approach around computer system validation to make it easier to implement technologies. And they're talking about uh, trends like the review of the future, where instead of taking months or years to review products, you could do it much sooner. 
And then we're also seeing a change in culture where we're shifting from an over focus on compliance to focusing on product quality with compliance being a benign side effect. And then from a technology standpoint, we're seeing what we call the internet of medical things. So all these devices, your Apple watch is a medical device, right? It, there are medical devices everywhere and they're being connected over the internet. Whether you're talking about now ventilators that are monitored remotely, um, or glucose meters that are being monitored, managed remotely, the internet of medical things is making a significant change to the industry along with cloud computing, because you can now bring all that data and then you need to model, you need to simulate, you need to be able to apply machine learning and artificial intelligence to actually make sense of all these data because data by themselves are useless. If you don't have the context, if you don't understand, if I tell you it's, uh, 160 degrees, it, your coffee is 160 degrees. Is it too hot, too cold, or just right? Well, I didn't give you the units. So depending on the units, if it is 160 degrees Fahrenheit, it'll be perfect, right? If it's 160 degrees Kelvin, it's going to be way too cold. And if it's 160 degrees Fahrenheit, it's going to be way too hot. So it's understanding what does that mean? So the challenge is how do we make it how do we make all these things move forward and how do we apply future technology so that we can prevent the storm or at least ride the storm of positive disruption in a better way? So as Angelique mentioned, technologies such as quantum, quantum computing are going to make a significant impact in drug development and the ability to identify compounds much earlier on to ensure that they're safe and are effective and or efficacious, whether it's a device or, or a pharma product. And then, you know, we all t we're all talking about industry 4.0. Well, in pharma, we're still at industry 2.0 or 3.0. We need to leapfrog to industry 5.0 because simply modernizing or simply bringing our technology up to date today is not going to be sufficient. Well, I think in the high, you know, I came out of the life sciences industry myself, and I think mm -hmm. it's a great point because in order to uh, to make change, your choice is always in the life sciences space to either leapfrog a current generation or be stuck at a generation that you wish you had leapfrogged uh, for generations past because with the heavy mm -hmm. degree of regulation, you, can, you can't change to every .o generation. It's just extremely, extremely challenging, and, and the concept of the smart reviews and the audit ready all the time uh, is just fascinating stories. And uh, that answer is going to lead us up to our break. And on the other side of the break, uh, you know, when we start talking again about the life sciences business being disrupted, uh, just as Angelique had mentioned, for every industry, uh, we are seeing that there will be survivors and there will be others uh, that, are, that do not survive it well. And uh, on the other side of the break, we're actually going to ask Dan to, set, to tell his own, uh, own survival story uh, associated with, uh, with, with his upbringing and, uh, and, and when he first came to the country. Uh, I think it's a fascinating story uh, when you get to know Dan to, uh, to, know, to learn something about him that very few people 
no. So uh, right at the other side of the break, I'll ask Dan to start with that story. And then ironically, I will be able to tie Dan's story into another uh, hidden gem about me. Uh, I'm always careful about what I share, but I think there's one that's actually appropriate that I can share with regards to uh, attaching it to Dan's story. So uh, with that, I would ask that we go ahead and go into the break and uh, we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at Voice AM Business. Again, that's at Voice AM Business and stay current. Bootleg Advisors provides insight and guidance to executives with the courage to unlock hidden value in their enterprise. We do this by bridging the gap between the needs of the business and the ability of the workforce to execute in a secure and resilient environment. By helping organizations transform their current workforce to the workforce of the future, the Bootleg Advisors curated ecosystem of partners will make sure your business makes more, breaks less, and didn't spend. Move the areas of your business that need transformation from the to-do list to the got-done list with Bootleg Advisors. Visit bootleg.life to find out more. That's bootleg.life. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Bootlegged Innovations with host John Schultz. Feel free to email questions and comments about the show to john at bootleg.life. That's J-O-H-N at bootleg.life. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. The beauty of live radio is we were actually talking uh, during the short break that uh, occasionally if you hear what you think is a rooster in the background, it absolutely is a rooster. Uh, We have seven roosters on our property. One of them is just coming of age and learning how to crow. So uh, you always know if it's him because right after he crows, he's exhausted and you hear a little bit of a at the end of, uh, of, of his crow. So that's how I always know that it's silver. Uh, and on the other end of the break, we had uh, talked about uh, having Dan share with us a, uh, his personal story of, uh, of survival and uh, specifically whenever, uh, whenever he came to the country. Dan? So thanks, John. So uh, most of you don't know that I was actually born and raised in the South. You can probably tell from my accent, um, but I'm talking about way South in Argentina. Uh, so at the age of 17, I immigrated to the U.S and moved to Brighton Beach, Brooklyn. Uh, And I had very rudimentary knowledge of the Queen's English. Uh, So, you know, how do you do? And I have got to go to my home and landed in Brooklyn, uh, where the land of how you doing and forget about it. Uh, It was very difficult uh, to make that transition. And during my senior year of high school at Lafayette High School, I got a job at a local butcher shop to help out 
the family. And uh, there, my, my duties were, were pretty broad. I was vice president of supply chain management, which meant I stocked all the shelves. I was director of environmental health and safety, which meant I had to wear a lab coat and those cloth, uh, cloth uh, gloves when I was handling raw meat. And I was also head of environmental hygiene, which meant that every Friday afternoon, I had to crawl into the uh, refrigerator to clean the meat grinder. So um, I always tell folks that work with me that I will not ask them to do anything that I won't do or haven't done, mm -hmm. but I always tell them that one of my first jobs was cleaning a meat grinder. The other important thing that actually gave me a great appreciation, especially in, you know, with what we're going through now for the hard work that goes into putting food on the shelves. And it reminds me also that when things get tough, I have some pretty marketable skills that I can fall back on. <laughs> <laughs> Always good to have those. And believe it or not, your story ties into one of the uh, factoids about me. Uh, there was a period of my life whenever I had just left Eli Lilly and company and had launched uh, my former company, Allied uh, Reliability, formerly known as Allied Services Group, that uh, again, when I started the company, I was only 29 years old. I had one hell of a mullet that came back down to about midway through my shoulders. I rode a Harley, drank a case of beer a day. But uh, the other thing that I was back in the day was a competitive eater. Uh, so yes, I've done the, uh, my, the largest steak I ever did was 110 ounce steak. I've done 11 racks of ribs, 150 chicken wings and 60 scrambled eggs in one setting. Uh, wow. Each one of those were separate settings. Uh, I look back and I'm like, how the hell did I do that? But uh, yeah, so when you talk about the butcher shop and the meat grinder, uh, it seemed to tie nicely into uh, into my past as a uh, as a competitive eater, or as a couple of my friends, Tim Goshard and Doug Wagen, always used to refer to me as they referred to me as the conehead that I ate mass quantities of drank mass quantities of alcohol and consumed mass quantities of food. Uh, so. <laughs> So that's, uh, that's a little known, a little known fact about me. And now uh, back on to the uh, more intellectual portion of the show, which would be when I turn it back over to my guests. Uh, Angelique, when I went to your website for the first time, one of the things that immediately caught my eye was the infographic where you feature a thousand projects, a thousand people. And some little infographic details on wonderful things like zombies. Uh, could you, uh, could you talk a little bit about that infographic on your website, which will hopefully also encourage people to visit gainx.com? Gainx.com. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I think part, part of the reason that we could, we could um, present those stats is because one of the unique things that GainX does is when it looks at an organization's ability to deliver against any strategy. And, you know, our sort of claim to fame is we can predict the outcome of any strategy, regardless of the size of the company or the maturity of the company. Um, when you look at enough uh, people and projects, you start to see trends um, happening across those when you start to bring it all together. And um, what, we, what we noticed, for example, is that for about every 1,000 projects, um, and I'm just going to open it up here, yeah. So for about every 1,000 projects, 65% of them had up to 150% additional hidden costs 
And our platform um, can identify what those hidden costs are um, and why those hidden costs exist. So a very quick example is to bring the, the sort of projects or work streams or initiatives, whatever a company might call them, into view of a network of people when the majority of your programs, for example, are sitting in what I call, what we call um, within the platform actually, a clay layer, um, there's a really good chance that they're gonna either fail or become a zombie. And a clay layer is just simply a part of the organization that doesn't get the information it needs to do their job effectively. And reasons for clay layers are, you just did an M&A, and so your existing internal network imploded, or you've got a broken process, or you simply have a culture that's resistant to change, and so they won't internalize new information. All of those things contribute to a clay layer. A clay layer slows down processes, breaks processes, creates duplicative work, increases flight risk of key talent, and can create what we call zombies. And, um, and I, I know I, I definitely play with archaeology throughout um, our, <laughs> our current company, but a zombie is those projects that never deliver their value. And for a while, they might be shelved. And it, it typically happens between that sort of eight-month to 32-month mark where, you know, it comes out of the gate. It's got all the sponsorship that it needs. It's got a big budget. It's got gung-ho leaders, and out it goes. Um, and it doesn't get the success required. And again, there could be a multitude of reasons. And so it gets shelved for a little while until people kind of forget that, you know, it, what was called, let's say, continuous improvement is now called agile and then called customer centricity and then called, you know, whatever. All of those are zombie projects that have been the same strategy, you know, for a couple decades. And they, they cost millions in additional costs that are hidden in those clay layers and duplicative work and so on. Fantastic. So, so those, those are the, the primary ones. And the, the last thing I'll say about that is you can look at it from the lens of what work are you actually trying to accomplish to deliver the strategy, but you can also look at it from the people lens. So why are people in a clay layer? Why is isolation of certain parts of the organization high? Why do you have people doing the same work um, in the same organization without that awareness? So it just gives you those lens to identify those additional costs. And, and Dan, whenever Angelique was sitting there talking, she was talking about the fact that they ingest a ton of data to come up with these trends across thousands of projects and thousands of people. One of your favorite quotes that you use frequently is that digital transformation without data integrity is insanity. Uh, and I was wondering if you would uh, expand upon that a bit. Sure. So the challenge when you're when we're talking to executives around digital transformation is that as Angelique mentioned, it almost becomes flavor of the month, right? So mm -hmm. we're going to do total business reengineering and we're going to do lean and we're going to do six Sigma and we're going to do transformation. It's we're doing it all. And yet we're doing nothing. The challenge is today. I mean, when I started 30 years ago, the technology wasn't ready. We were an IBM shop and the token didn't go around the ring fast enough for all, for those of you who know about token ring, right? Today, the technology is ready. The technology is available and many executives and many companies look at digital transformation as what technology do I need to implement? 
The problem is that digital transformation is a process, not a project. And many organ and it requires major cultural change from the top down, from the bottom up, and from what one industry executive calls especially the frozen middle. Those folks who are in the middle of the organization who would rather not change the way they do things. As a result, what happens is companies implement technology without recognizing that there are conflicting data sources. And if you remember the movie, one of my favorite quotes uh, from A Few Good Men is Colonel Jessup, uh, who's played by Jack Nicholson, and says, can, and he asks, can you handle the truth? And then he answers himself by saying, you can handle the truth. The problem is, if you don't have data governance, you don't know what the truth is. And as a result, you're implementing technology on a crumbling foundation. And something as simple I mentioned earlier, unit of measure, right? If I have three, four, if I have my ERP system and my shop floor system and my limb system and fill in the blank, all the systems tracking the same raw material, but they're using a different unit of measure. One does milliliters, one does grams, one does eaches. When I try to bring all that information together, I it's impossible to, for me to identify what the truth is. So to do digital transformation without data governance is insanity. And I have seen many very large projects, well-funded with backing from executive management fail because by the time they needed to get results, they were unable to measure them. Fantastic. Angelique, that actually brings up, I'm going to pivot just a little bit in the conversation, even from the question list that I gave, that I gave you in advance. So just so that you know, okay. uh, but I want to tie this directly to the conversation that you and I had earlier. One, about how does this tie into ethical AI? And mm. two, the mandatory training that before anyone can roll out your platform that you require on basically care, the governance care of the data because of all the new discoveries and to Dan's point of whether or not an organization can handle the truth. I just think that that was a great lead into the conversation that you and I were just having a couple of hours ago. Okay, so I will bring it back to, yes, our mandatory duty of care, but just to touch on ethical AI, and, and we do have that duty of care because of that. Um, I, I think that, you know, if you ask, hundred people what ethical AI is, you're still going to get a hundred different answers. It's just really up for debate. Um, but I do think that there are some, some fundamentals um, that we need to look at, particularly today. Um, it should be designed without bias. And the, the challenge that I see is, and again, I'm a trained anthropologist so, and a published anthropologist, and the challenge I see is people don't know what bias even means, right? So <laughs> how can we define ethical AI when there's a debate over what bias means? And some look at bias built into artificial intelligence as an economic advantage. So there's, there's a lot of work to do there. Um, but um, our, our focus and my personal passion, which I brought into GainX, and I, I just at the end of last year launched another separate sort of sister organization called Leave No Human Behind. And it's how do we build artificial intelligence that can help the human race continue to advance without leaving any human behind? Part of that, of course, is to evolve it without um, that bias. 
Part of it is to look at the very frightening, widening gap that we see um, in terms of wealth distribution. So if you're um, developing artificial intelligence or a company that is leveraging it, um, what are you doing to, again, assure that we, we leave no human behind? Again, we're all networked, right? And, and we're in the age of the network. And for us to think that we can, um, you know, can continue to evolve in our small, small town Canada or big city London, England, or whatever it might be, and not understand that your actions have an effect, um, it to me is, is short-sighted and artificial intelligence, I think, is um, accelerating those insights. To come to the duty of care program, the insights that GainX can generate inside of an organization, whether it's a thousand people or over a hundred thousand people, are really profound. It is incredibly profound to have the light shone on your organization in a way that it has never been shone on before. So if you're the executive that we've identified in a $3 billion transformation spend, $300 million worth of duplicative work, um, you might not want to share that with your peers. You might not want to share it at all. If we've identified that, um, you know, by month 11, 90% of your projects are failing or becoming zombies, and it's costing you $165 million per quarter, you might not want to share that. If we've identified, and I'll use this as a last example, echo chambers inside of those clay layers. And echo chambers are groups of people that don't internalize new information because they don't understand what the value is to them. So they could be a clique, they could be again afraid of change, but they're not gonna ingest new information or new change until they understand the benefits. Those cost companies um, tens of millions to hundreds of millions of dollars. The duty of care program means that with these additional insights that you get, this is about understanding, looking at the humans in your network in a new way. It's a mind shift and it's a behavioral shift to bring together your strategy and the goals that you have to drive revenue or market share or shareholder value with the people that you need to actually drive those strategies. And we've talked about this for decades. I've worked in change management for decades. The, the need to have cultural shift, bottom up, top to bottom, all of those things we've been talking about it for a very long time. Um, this shines the light on not only where it's non-existent, but how to go up that maturity curve to an organization that's far more optimized and making the most out of the humans working for them. That's fantastic because uh, one of the things that we talk, when we speak about bridging the gap between the needs of the business and the ability of the workforce to execute, that's exactly what we're talking about. How do you have the organizational diligence, but yet ethics to be able to move upon the data in a responsible way? How do you make sure that, how do you make sure that the needs of the business are being balanced with the ability of the workforce to execute and the, and where your workforce actually is culturally as well and yep. getting all three of those in balance. So when we had a, on a later episode, talk about centers of intelligence, I found out that centers of intelligence actually go back to ancient Greek times. Uh, and that whether you, it's as a person, as a, as an organization or as a society, if you do not have all three centers of intelligence and balance and in harmony, you will not get optimal results. And those three centers of intelligence, uh, for the audience are first the thinking center of intelligence, which is the brain Two, the emotional center of intelligence, which is the heart and three, 
the action center of intelligence, which is the body. If those three things are not in harmony, uh, then you're going to get suboptimal results. And even my rooster agrees. I <laughs> just, just heard him again in the background. Uh, Dan, doing a bit of a pivot on the conversation. One of the other areas that uh, has fascinated me, because again, I came out of the life sciences industry, is you talk about the fact that there are three steps to closing the loop on quality. And I was wondering if you could touch on those three steps as well as how you think that is going to kind of tie into this concept of, uh, of, of audit of the future, if you will. Yep. So one of the challenges that the life sciences industry has is over the years, um, we have been extremely focused on regulatory compliance. And uh, Dr. Jeff Schurens, who's the director of the Centers for Devices and Radiological Health at FDA, says, describes the relationship between the regulator and the company as whack-a-mole. So the regulator comes in and whacks the company for something they've done wrong. And that becomes very reactive. So the company cannot then spend enough money trying to address that very narrow issue that the regulator has identified. So one of those steps is recognizing that compliance and quality, while used interchangeably in our industry, are not the same. The patient doesn't care about compliance. The patient cares about quality. Compliance is really a benign side effect of doing the right thing, following a well-designed process and executing it and having the documented evidence to show that you did the right things. But it shouldn't be the starting point for everything that we do. The second point is the need to overcome what we like to call regulatory inertia. In life sciences organizations, or most organizations, one of the challenges is that we haven't changed. If you look at the good manufacturing practices for pharmaceutical products, they were originally written in 1978, and they have changed little. Yes, there have been a few minor tweaks here and there, but if you look at GMPs from 1978 and now, they're, they're the same words. We're talking about the same things. And as a result of that, many executives who grew up with GMPs in 1978 are still trying to hold the industry to the same standards, even though technology has grown exponentially. You know, you look at Moore's Law, right? We're double every 18 months. And still from a compliance standpoint, we're still holding ourselves to 1978 standards. So we need to change that. And if you look at the GMPs, the good manufacturing practices, there's a little C in front of CG in GMPs, current good manufacturing practices, because even the regulators have recognized the fact that what was top of line 20, 30 years ago is no longer applicable today. So companies need to change that. And then the third step, is the digital transformation that we talked about. It's the fact that organizations really need to have improved visibility, control, and collaboration across the entire organization to build resilience. We have too many silos. And when you have silos, you really don't know what's going on within your company. Because what's being reported up is the Excel spreadsheet that somebody put together for each one of those departments. And we're talking about last week, last month, last year's information. 
instead of real-time information. So we need to transform. And many organizations, unfortunately, are digitizing, which is saying, here's my paper process. I want paper on glass. That is not going to get you there. You really need to digitally transform. You need to change the culture. You need to change the process. And you need to have the data governance that we talked about. But the most important thing is the people. You know, changing the culture, educating people to ensure that they understand why and what you're trying to achieve. So, Angelique, building on that, you published tech uh, you published tech trends that will disrupt banking in 2020. What do you see are some of the uh, the biggest forces and trends in that? I think um, I would want to proceed with caution when I think about pre-COVID 2020 and post-COVID 2020 with regards to trends. However. Um, with that in mind, I think that there are some some trends that you know we've we've sort of seen get seeded, um, but are likely to be accelerated. One of those is that behavioral shift that I mentioned. So I think um, I think that there is a probably profound number of executives um, that are sitting um, in well in their home offices today, um, wondering how to navigate this because. There is nobody, there is absolutely no expert in the world that can predict what's going to happen in the next 18 months. And that's fairly new. I mean, even pre-big data and artificial intelligence, there was always experts out there predicting what the economy might look like and how it'll affect your business and your investments. So there's, I think we've seen some movement to, to executive mind shifts and behavioral shifts, but I think that's going to get accelerated incredibly. Um, the other trend which is going to be accelerated is the age of the network that I mentioned earlier. So networks grow by their very nature. Um, whether or not they grow and how they grow really will be up to the, the human influence upon them. But that understanding, for example, of how a broken supply chain in food might affect your ability to deliver medical treatments. Um, and those things are going to be related, right? And I think we've seen um, supply chains and we continue to see them completely imploding um, under COVID. So understanding whether we call it a network or perhaps a systemic view is going to be um, an incredibly important behavioral shift that we're going to have to see as the technology continues to accelerate. Excellent. Thanks, Angelique. That's going to have to do it for our show today. Uh, we will also be doing some bonus reel because there's some questions that uh, the two of us had hoped to get into that we didn't get the opportunity to. But next week's episode is going to be bridging the gap, using artificial intelligence to accelerate and manage change. And uh, we'll have three guests on our show next week. The uh, uh, the uh, author of Why Digital Fails, along with the CEO of Augmenteer, along with a top gun, former Top Gun Navy pilot, Mike Aroni, will all be on the show. Cool. And so really looking forward to that discussion. And uh, at this time, I would ask that uh, you all focus on getting some of your to-do lists over to your to-done list. And above all else, between now and next week's episode, keep on bootlegging. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you for listening to Bootlegged Innovations. Be sure to join John Schultz again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll talk again next week. 